If you are feeling that nudge inside of you telling you that you are meant for something more or that life is not meant to be this massive slugfest, then you are in the right place. Welcome to the Breaking Free with Lindsay podcast. I am Lindsay and I am so glad you're here because here we talk about breaking free from what we quote unquote should be doing or from how we're told it needs to be done so we can follow that whisper inside of us that is really calling us forward, that is pulling us forward to be our most authentic selves and live the life that is on our heart. So this is all about shedding those fears, the limiting beliefs, the expectations that have been placed on you by society, your family, yourself, everything that is holding us back and really living this free and beautiful life that we are meant to live. So if you are enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star review. It would really help me out and it would help others find it. Now let's dive into today's episode. All right. Here we are, my very first interview on the new podcast, and I'm very excited to have Ellen here. Hello, Ellen. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, too. A little nervous. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I know Ellen um, through our business. We're both in Enagic, in, in and um, we got paired up, or we paired ourselves up, I guess, um, during a challenge as accountability partners, and the more... I've talked with you, Ellen, the more inspired I am by you. Um, I love, I have loved and appreciated our conversation so much. And we've, we've talked about many, many things, not just business. Um, but when I thought about interviewing people on this podcast, you were one of the first names that popped into my mind because I just, your story, every time I talk to you, I learn something new and it's just, the amount of courage that you've had in your life to do the things that you've done is just, it's, it's inspirational to me. And um, so I'm excited to talk to you about wherever this conversation goes today. Um, but I, I, one of the stories I found really powerful and just wowed by was how, your story of home birth, because you were doing home birth. I mean, you're much older than me. How old are you? How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Um, actually, I'm 67. 67. Yeah. Um, so you're you're like my mom's age, and and you had the courage to deliver your babies at home, and and even during times when you're told that that you weren't allowed to do that. And so I'd love to start there with you know, how you, how you, how you ended up in that place, how you ended up um, doing home births during a time where you were kind of told not to. So first I want to say it's real weird being told that I'm an inspiration. That isn't something I guess you feel like you are ever. Um, And I never really realized that I was courageous until in recent years. That isn't what that felt like either. Um, but the thing was that, um, well, my husband and I got married when I was 19. And I was already at that, at that point, I was really disillusioned with um, Western medicine and with... Um, patriarchy, although I didn't even know that word, but that's what I identify with now is the way I was feeling. 
And um, I never realized there wasn't really much of a rule follower because I really towed the line in school and at home or I'd get the shit beat out, beat out of me, you know, kind of upbringing. But um, I was uncomfortable with many things that I was told. And I decided that if I was going to be an adult and raise my kids, then everything needed to feel right with my heart. I needed to do what felt right, you know? And I think that was just more of an instinctual thing than feeling like I was, uh, you know, now when I hear that, I think, oh, that person's spiritual and they're really tuning into the heart. And it was not like that at all. It was just who I am, I guess, you know? So when I got, I got pregnant. Okay. So my firstborn was three years after we got married, our anniversary and her birth were within um, a month of each other. And um, I had already decided, I guess, when I got pregnant that I, or, or else I did shortly after that I was going to have a home birth. So I must've been reading. I should say that my my freshman year in college, we had to do term papers, you know, research papers. And my, my I did mine on prenatal care. Ashley Montague's book, Life Before Birth. Um, okay. Because my desire in life, I remember from the time I was probably nine, was to be a mom. That's all I really wanted was to be a mom. And so... Um, my freshman year in college, that's what I did my term paper on. And I went to parenting classes that I found out about. Like I'm the only single teenager there and they're thinking I'm pregnant or something, I'm sure, which I wasn't. Um, but I just, just wanted prepared. all the information, right? Wow. So, um, and I don't know where I started studying about it, but I was very unhappy with the statistics for um, hospital births and stuff in the United States. And um, I might have seen something about it, maybe like Mother Earth News magazine or something, because my husband and I really got into that the first or second year we were married. I really don't know. Um, but I started looking into home birth. And at the time we lived in Arizona, and um, so I thought, well, I'll just get a midwife um, and stuff. But, you know, naive, we moved to Iowa when I was first pregnant and found out when we got there that midwifery was illegal in the state. Wow. And we were too young. We didn't know about any options at that point. And so I took this long list of things that I wanted for my birth and took it to the, and found a doctor that agreed to everything. You know, I wanted no medicine and I, I wanted to be in certain position and I didn't want an episiotomy and I didn't want any, you know, I had, I had, a, I don't want delayed cord cutting. I like had this whole list, right? because I'd been reading all about birth and pregnancy and everything. And he agreed to it. And then I still can't believe I did this because I was like 22. I, I, I can't fathom who I was at that time, I guess. I went to the hospital to the head of the obstetric ward 
and set an appointment with her and took her papers on the research on birthing rooms because they were a new thing. And how if she really wanted to be up and coming, she needed to make a birthing room on, in her hospital. And here's all these benefits. And I gave her all this paperwork and she did it so that I could have my baby in a birthing room if I was going to have to have it in the hospital. Isn't that weird? I, I still can't think how did I even, what was I thinking? Well, it's it's amazing that you had the courage and the balls to do that, but then for her to listen and and actually take you seriously and and just... Well, I mean, I, I had this little folder with all this paperwork that I'd done at the library and printed off. And it didn't even feel like a courageous thing. It felt like what I had to do so that I could have a good birth. You right. know, it was like, I didn't feel like I had a choice. So I yeah. just did it. I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, so there I, think, I think that's actually a really good point, though, because, you know, it doesn't you know, we look at others and think that they're doing something courageous. But when we're we're in it, it feels either like we're compelled to do it and we have no choice and there is no other way, even though there are other ways, but like, it feels like there's no other option or it feels completely terrifying. It doesn't, it feels like you're like curled up in the fetal position half the time going, I don't know what I'm doing, but to the outside looking in it, it looks courageous. And those are like, that's what courage looks like. It's, it's a mix of terrifying and feeling compelled. Like you, you cannot do something different. So I think that's a really, really important point is these yeah. moments of courage that other people perceive as courage. They don't feel courageous in the moment. They feel either terrifying or just like you're compelled and you're just like, there's no other option. So one of the things that I, I feel like I've learned about myself is that I really am a creative problem solver. And I never had identified that when I was younger, but I'm sure in that situation that I was like, okay, what can I do to problem solve? If I can't have a home birth, how can I have the best hospital birth? Right. And it was give this list to the doctor, find a doctor that'll agree to it, get a birthing room, get it set up the best that I could. Right. Um, but I have, very precipitous labors, which I didn't, I mean, I kind of anticipated that because my mother did. And I had read somewhere that if you, if your mother has unmedicated births and you do too, that you will most likely follow the same type of pattern that she did in her labor. Okay. And I was accidentally born, born at home. Even though it was my mother's second birth, she had no knowledge. She was in labor, got up and went to the bathroom and I was almost born in the toilet. She didn't even know she was having a baby. So wow. I always thought, well, I might do that, right? Right. And I got up in the morning. I mean, I woke up in early morning because I had a contraction. And five minutes later, I had another one. And five minutes later, I had another one, I thought. So I said, okay, well, I better take a shower and we'll get ready to go. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the shower, I went through transition. Mm -hmm. Evacuated both ends. And it started in hard and heavy. And um, and we still went to the hospital, you know, knowing what I know now, obviously, we would have just stayed home. But so we went to the hospital. And when we got there, they um, I looked like a teenager at 22. I mean, I looked really super young. 
And they were like, oh, this is your first baby. Well, you need to calm down, honey. It's going to be a while. Right. And I'm like, no, it's not. You know, and they're, oh, you need to settle down. You need to settle down. You know, and they take me in the birthing room and try to prep me. And I'm like in heavy labor at that point. And the nurses just keep telling me to settle down. It's going to be a while. I need to stop being so dramatic. And and then the nurse takes one look down there and screams, oh, my God, and runs out of the room. That's not the reaction you want. <laughs> what kind of reaction is that? Because the baby was about to come. And I so do. what did I do? What did I do physically? I shut it down. Subconsciously, wow. I shut it down. And 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 it and I added an hour to my labor, basically, because that scared me. Right. Well, I feel and like then, it would scare anything. And then when the doctor did come in, he went against every single thing he'd agreed to and started doing his standard thing. And I had to advocate for myself and yell at him while I was in hard labor. And um, he, he gave me an unnecessary episiotomy. He gave me medicine while I was telling him I didn't want it. And he said, I didn't ask you. And then he told me to be quiet. And um, I mean, this was in 1979, you know, they could do whatever the hell they want. But um, I was extremely, extremely upset about it. And um, the episiotomy damaged me down there uh, permanently and has caused me issues. And um, the medicine that he gave me, I went and looked up at the library afterwards because we had, my daughter was very um, inconsolable and difficult. And the side effects on that medicine that had not been approved yet for uh, labor and delivery um, were emotional issues of being hard to console and things like that. I just made a list of what my daughter was like. And so obviously at that point, I was like, never again. Never again. And so the other five were born at home with my husband and me. And I invited friends sometimes. Um, we tried to have a midwife a couple of times, but they never made it on time. So, you know, that year when, when my daughter was like six months old, we went to the farm in Tennessee for a midwifery conference. Um, we went to home birth classes. Um, in Omaha, we went, we went, like, we traveled and got as educated as we could. And, um, well, that's, that's even amazing in and of itself that you were, I mean, from a young age, very interested in birth and that whole prenatal process. And then having quite a traumatic experience in the hospital with the doctor, like that just is such a violation what they did to you, but then to just say, okay, I'm not going to be victimized by this again. I'm going to empower myself and I'm going to travel around and learn and, and get as much information as possible so I can be better prepared and, and, and take control of my next birth. Like that's, that's so impressive, Ellen, how you just, you know, if you, 
you had the the wherewithal to you know do your research in the first place but then basically when you kind of got kicked down you're just you you rose up and you're just like hell no <laughs> like no 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 um so then you had your other you had your other kids at home were you still in Iowa for those like were was it still so, well the first two so the second one um we found a doctor in South Dakota that would see us knowing that we were having a home birth there's an old country doctor that used to do home visits but we were 90 minutes away. So we okay. went to him for prenatal care. And when it was the time before, well, I probably wasn't going to see him again before the baby was born. He said, you guys have got this. He said, everything checks out. Everything's going to go fine. You've got it. Just call me, you know, when you have the baby. And we were like, okay, cool. You know, so we called him. After the baby was born, and we were like, "Yeah, the baby was born." Da 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 da. And um, ninety minutes later, he knocked on our door. I couldn't believe it. He had never been to our place. It was in a different state, but he knocked on our door and he just wanted to check the baby and check me. And he said, "You look like a war zone down there." <laughs> baby checked out. Baby checks out just perfect. Y'all did a great job. And then, well, I'll see you later. And he left. Oh. It was pretty amazing. Um, and then the third one, I don't remember if we even had prenatal care. I we must have. I, I don't remember. I just remember that we had her at home. She was the shortest labor. I got up that morning and I was like, I feel really weird. And my husband said, well, are you in labor? And I said, well, not having contractions. I, I don't think I'm in labor. I just feel different. I feel really weird. And he's like, do you want me to stay home? And I'm like, I don't think there's any reason for you to stay home. You know, I just, I just feel weird. I don't know what it is. Third one. So he leaves. This is before cell phones. And I don't think he'd been gone three minutes when I was hit with a whopping contraction, like nearly knocked me off my feet. And of course, just a few minutes later, less than five, I had another one. And so I called where he was going to work. And I said, do not let him get out of his car. Yes. Go out there, turn him around and tell him to get back home. And from that first contraction until her birth was one hour. Wow. And he made it back home about 20 minutes before she was born. And um, it was really fast. Yeah, that is so fast. Um, so, so what was his perspective like going through all of this? Um, and like, how was he at was he fully bought in in the beginning to doing home births and then like essentially he was delivering babies, right? Your yeah. baby. Um, I think without, without knowing, um, for some reason, my husband has always really, really trusted me and my instincts um, and my 
research and he will pretty much as you as you'll see from all the other things we ended up doing he just kind of comes on board pretty quickly with whatever whatever I tell him you know it makes sense to him the way I explain it I guess and um and he just jumps on board 100 percent and yeah, so Sounds like you're a really great pair that way. Um, yeah, it sounds it's and it doesn't sound like he's necessarily just indifferent. It just sounds like he trusts you and is supportive yeah. and is is there with you. But um, oh yeah, definitely, definitely not indifferent. He he, I mean, he actually gets on board a hundred percent and fights for what I want. Um, because it becomes very quickly what we want. So, well, and that's amazing. Just, and I can just say, like having, you know, been married to someone who never held me back in any way, um, but wasn't, I guess, like would let me do things, but because it was just sort of the path of least resistance. Okay, Lindsay, you just kind of do what you need to do. Uh, it's okay. Um, but not fully stepping in with me and being like, okay, this is our, this is our, um, viewpoint. This is our perspective. This is our path yeah. forward doing this together. So, um, I think that's really incredible that you found a partner and it's just, it seems even, I mean, I, relationships are different now, but like you found each other at such a young age and you're still together and you've been through a lot of, a lot of things. And, um, yeah, I just think it's, I, I love hearing stories of, um, marriages and relationships where they've withstood the test of time and not necessarily saying that it was all like easy peasy, but no. there's a a true partnership there, true partnership there that has spanned decades. And that's pretty, that's pretty, I feel like rare these days. And it's pretty incredible to hear stories like yours. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, we, we had some extremely rough patches where it almost did not, did not stay together, but we, one way or another made it through to the other side, you know. Do you know what pulled you through those those hard moments? Um well I mean it's been very, very different situations each time. Um the worst for me was an entire year where I hated the sight of him. I was extremely anger, angry and bitter about um, our financial situation and decisions he was making that were making um, it worse instead of better. But um, I had six kids and there was not a place in town family or government or any other that would take us in and he wasn't going to leave the house. Right. So there yeah, wasn't same. anything I could do except, right. you know, turn into an ice cube when he was around and keep going. And at that time, um, I was still a Christian and um, so I was praying 
which I think, you know, now I view that as a real energetic thing instead of mm -hmm. just uh, pleading with some, you know, being somewhere. Right. But anyway, my prayer was make me fall in love with him again because this is hell living like this in the same house when I can't stand the side of him. Right. And, um, and it turned around in an instant. I mean, it was, it had took a long time, but the day it did, I remember him walking in the door and my first thought was, damn, he's good looking. You know, it was the first time in a year and everything fell back into place. And, you know, the conversation and the forgiveness and the, you know, everything happened and it was all fresh and new again. Oh. I just, I, I'm always just floored by the amazing power of prayer and, and what, you know, for you to pray, to fall in love with him again, versus praying for a way out. Um, I think even, I don't know, that in and of itself is, I think, very different than what a lot of people would pray for. But just, I've experienced that power shift after prayer before as well. Um, and in my case, it was with someone I had, a family member who I'd been fighting with and um, just really bitter and resentful towards. And I was just like, I just... I just prayed to let that go. I just, I wanted to, you know, forgive and yeah. move on. And it was, it was instantaneous. I remember it and it was just incredible. Um, so I, so maybe we can just shift the conversation now. Cause I'm curious, cause you mentioned you were a Christian and now it's more of a spiritual thing. And I've gone through a similar probably not the same story, but I was, I grew up in, uh, going to church every week and, um, praying before dinner and, um, around my teenage years, I really started to question things. And for me, I have really had to step away from church and religion, but I feel like my faith is way stronger now. But for me, I had to go more abstract. It was too, the the Bible and the teachings in, in religion were too literal for me to really um, absorb as my own. Um, so I'm curious, how did you, what was your, your journey from, I guess, Christianity to spirituality to whatever it is? whatever it is you, you call yourself now or identify with as now. That is probably the hardest subject for me to talk about because I still have um, quite a bit of anger and bitterness that I haven't finished working through. So I'm going to be real careful so that I don't get into a rage, which is what I, I have done okay. in the past. Um, I was raised um, conservative Christian, and um, so it was the whole, you know, sin and hell and all that kind of stuff. Um, and my first 
really big uh, conscious falling out, which I ended up reconciling and staying, was in high school when I was told that when Jerry Lewis died, he was going to hell because he was a Jew. And that did not make sense to me because I, what I knew of him was he was a loving, philanthropic, generous, kind person. And right. God is to be a God of love. Why would he do that? Because he didn't say the certain prayer, right? So that was, that, that started a thing there. But I stayed, we stayed in the Christian church. And then the second thing that happened was when I started being exposed to kind of more of the a charismatic part of it. Um, right after my first baby was born with one of my best friends, I visited a different church with her. And um, so I went to talk to the pastor of our church, my husband and I's church at the time. And he said that all of that was, I mean, I don't remember how I worded, but basically all that's bullshit and it's wrong. And it's, and it seems so much more loving to me that I was like, how can this be wrong? You know? So that was another one that happened. And then um, I was getting very, very disillusioned with the church. And then another thing happened. And then I was told I had decided early that I was never going to strike my children. And I had a bumper sticker that said spanking is hitting and I had books and stuff. But during that time that I had stopped trusting myself, and listening to the church, I basically was told if I didn't spank my kids, it was their blood was going to be on my hands and they would go to hell because um, they would never learn to obey God if they didn't learn to obey me and all that kind of stuff. And so we started spanking, which was horrible. Right. And I cried every time I did it because it went against my heart, my gut, everything in me. But I thought that I was the one that was wrong and that I couldn't trust myself. And so I just have to say that when I finally broke out of Christianity, um, every regret that I have in my life, which I know you're not supposed to have regrets and blah, 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 right? Everyone is related to what I did because I was a Christian instead of following my heart. Every single regret. Um, and the main one is the is the is the spanking and and discipline thing. That that should have never happened in my house. It was against everything I felt. But I just felt like I must be wrong and and I stopped trusting myself. Um, the other thing that really changed when I got out of it, um, the entire time, Christianity is what made me stop trusting myself as an individual. And I felt like I was unworthy. I wasn't good enough. Um, no matter how hard I tried, I was never going to be good enough. Um, I was really, really beat down by it. And when I finally said, Enough is enough. I'm done with it. My started to learn to love myself again and to trust myself again. And 
felt more life and more freedom and more love for humanity um, than than I ever have since I was, you know, really young. Um, well, and go ahead. So my religion, if I was going to say something, would be quantum physics. Because when I read um, Michael Talbot's book, The Quantum, I think it's called The Quantum Universe or something like that. It was about quantum physics. But really, quantum physics proves God. It proves that the energy of love is what created things and what keeps things going. Mm. You know, and that's what I believe that everything is connected in love from love by love. And that, that is the energy of the universe um, that is always for us. And I feel so much better as an individual um, believing that instead of the um, myths of any of the established religions, you know? And what a powerful story of learning to sort of going from, you know, what you are told you should be doing and how you should be acting to be, you know, a good member of society, the church, um, all of that stuff to following your instincts, trusting yourself, learning to love yourself, which from some perspectives, may seem really selfish and um, yeah, like something that you shouldn't pursue. But when you, when, when we do follow ourselves, we follow our heart, we feel more love for ourselves. We can also give more love to other people and we're a better person. We're kinder to others. Um, you're a better you mother. You're, yeah. You're a better mother in a, yeah, that's a huge one. And so by following what is calling us inside of ourselves and I'll say being selfish that way, even though it's not selfish and I don't believe it's selfish, but it's often perceived as selfish. Um, mm -hmm. We are really, we are really becoming better human beings to others and we have so much more to give. And then we're elevating others at the same time, because we are coming from a place of love. We are coming from a more elevated, calmer, um, more in tune place um, within ourselves. And I think that whole story just illustrates how it does feel easy, not easy, but I think most of us, whether it's from religion or schools or other, we're, we're conditioned to believe certain things and we're conditioned in many ways not to trust ourselves. Um, even I can think of in my former work life, it was, you know, follow the data, look at analyzing all like logic reason. And I'm like, I know what the data says. My intuition is saying this, but you know, convincing people in a corporate setting to follow my intuition when all the data is pointing a different way. Like even just small things like that. Now in business, I can look at the data and follow my intuition because it's my own. Um, but it is easy. Yeah, go ahead. The I didn't 
reject Christianity until after my kids were mostly grown. My younger ones were um, at least teenagers. My youngest was probably 13 or something at least before I started the process of coming out of it. And so they were raised uh, Christians and the older ones even more strictly, which was very, very harmful, very harmful for especially one of them. Um, but even during that time, what I really don't get about myself is I still would not compromise on certain things. So, and so even though I compromised on the discipline part of it, when my daughter, my oldest child was two, somebody asked me when I was going to put her in preschool, because, you know, she was getting that age. And I thought, oh, I need to research that. And I decided right then I was going to homeschool my kids. Because when I started doing the research, I was like, no way, I'm doing that. Oh, even before that, when she was like six weeks old, they told me it was time to take her to the pediatrician for her shots. And I was like, oh, I need to research that. Because right. I'm like, if I'm a mother now, I'm going to make the decisions that I feel are best for my kids. And that's going to take some research. I'm not just following what everybody else says. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from. I really don't. But that's just what was in me to do. And so I thought, well, I'll just go research this so that I'll feel good about getting these shots. And I went to the library, you know, there weren't any home computers or cell phones or any of that kind of stuff. And I was just like blown away by the information that was just in the library in the medical books. And I was like, there's no way I'm taking her back to a doctor for shots. And this was in 1979. And that was just the research that was available in the library. Mm. And so none of my kids ever had them. Um, and then when my uh, second one was born, so then when she was two, I decided, okay, we're homeschooling. And then when the second one was born, it was a boy. And so I researched circumcision. Oh, no, we're not doing that. You know, and that was in 82. And so then, you know, everybody is against me at that point because now I'm home birthing, I'm homeschooling, I'm not vaccinating, I'm not circumcising. Nobody on either side of the family is agreeing with me. Oh, we had also changed our diet to whole foods. And, oh, and no, that's, that's like in the 80s. And, <laughs> I was an no, baby. No, no processed sugars, no processed flours and whole foods. And um, so everybody at that point had decided that Ellen's just off her rocker. She's crazy. And uh, so I had zero support except for my husband. I did not have friends or family that were supporting my decisions. And, um, and that was probably the hardest thing throughout my mothering years was not having support because I firmly believe that motherhood is supposed to be done in a village, in a community where we do it together and to do it solo is extremely difficult. Yeah, it must have been 
hurtful and isolating and just overwhelming. Like I, I, I know even the struggles I've had with my own kids feeling very alone. And I had, I've had friends, I've had people around me to help on and off. Um, you know, a lot of my loneliness has been self-imposed and my beliefs that I should be able to handle it alone. Um, we should not be able to handle alone. That's not the way we were built. I don't, I agree. I agree. Um, but that was definitely my, my programming of, I should be able to handle this. These are my kids. How, how hard could a small child be like, this should be easier, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, to do six kids essentially by yourself and sort of with the, I mean, I think, I think it's incredible that you could, you went to the library, you didn't take things at face value. Um, I mean, so many people just trust their doctors or just go through the moment. Okay. Yep. Vaccines. Okay. Yep. Time to go to school. Um, and don't question things. And I feel like you were really, even with the food, like, (laughs) and I don't know where that came from. It's like, it was just the motto of my life to question everything. I should have it tattooed on me. I know. Um, and I always, I, I just have always done that. I, I don't, I don't know why. Well, and you took the time to go to the library and I'm even sitting here going, I wonder if you can even do that kind of research in the library now. Cause even just looking at, you know, my limited, I haven't done a lot of research in libraries in recent years. Um, but even just looking at the books that were on the shelves during COVID um, at the library were very one-sided. Now I didn't go specifically looking for the other side, but it was very apparent the beliefs of the library and what they were putting on display. So I wonder if you can even do that research at the library now. I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't know. Um, I haven't tried it, but. Um, what I looked in for that particular one was medical text. So I was really just reading um what they were saying, you know, the side effects and, you know, basically what's on that paper. Right. But when I saw the benefits, supposed to benefits that they're like, it may prevent this. It may do this. And here are the side effects. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> no I, I, th- I think I'll just do without those. <laughs> I remember doing that research too, when my first child was born and it was like weighing the, you know, yeah, the benefits and the risks and for each individual vaccine, we didn't look at vaccines in general, but it was for each individual one and the different brands. And, um, it was, I mean, it's time consuming to do your own research (laughs) and to think for yourself, but, um, yeah, I have no, no regrets that way. Information out there now. I mean, now there's books written on it, and you know you can find people like that. But I mean, you really can find you can find a book on any position you want to take either way. So, exactly. You know. It's, yeah, there's a, there's not a lot of unbiased information anywhere. Um, I'm curious to as humans, we are biased. We are. We we are. Yeah. And that's where following that pull inside of you and that intuition is really essential because you can look at very compelling arguments from any side of the equation on most issues and 
that's where it really comes back to learning to trust yourself and that you're capable of making these, these decisions and your intuition is going to lead you in the correct direction for you. And someone else's intuition may lead them in a different direction and a different decision. And that's, and that's, that's okay, but that's part of the process um, and learning to trust yourself because, and then to be able to stand in sort of the criticism and the people thinking you're crazy. And, you know, I know my mom was just like sending me all these, like, you know, there's been this outbreak because people aren't getting vaccinated. Like I just like, um, you know, just stuff like that. And when you follow your intuition, when you've done the research, when you've looked at both sides, when you've sat with yourself and you're comfortable, you're far more grounded and with able or and able to like weather that storm of of criticism. That's not to say it doesn't affect you or you don't feel like you're going crazy sometimes. Um, but don't give a flying part. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that helps a lot. But that's always the two biggest things I tell anybody who wants to ask me question everything and trust your intuition. I mean, yeah. that's how you need to go through life is question everything and trust your intuition. You know, and how, how do you, how do you trust your intuition? Like what's been, I mean, that's one thing that I've been asked of just, you know, trusting your intuition, but like, how, how do you, how do you start that? Or how do you know that? And and I don't have an answer. I mean, I have answers here and there, and I like to play with my intuition sometimes. And when I don't follow it, I'm like, oh, look what happened when I don't follow yeah. it. Um, but I'm just curious how you've cultivated that trust in your intuition. Um, trial and error is a part of it because, you know, there'll be times when you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then you're like, ah, it's no big deal. And you go ahead and do it. And then something happens and it might not be terrible or whatever, but it's like a negative thing. And you're like, you know, I should have trusted that when I thought that. And so that, you know, paying attention to that makes it easier for you to maybe trust it the next time. But I do think that one of the main keys to trusting your intuition is self-love. Hmm. Because when you love yourself, you trust yourself more, right? And you don't trust yourself if you don't love yourself, then, you know, you know, I mean, they kind of go hand in hand there. And, yeah, you know, there's lots and lots of information and stuff out there about ways you can start developing self-love, you know, but I think it's so, so key to understand that if you are alive right now, then you've been chosen to be alive right now. And that means something, you have something valuable to give to the world right now. Mm. And so you need to love who you are because your your unique contribution to the earth comes from loving who you are meant to be your true self which is going to be completely different you know than anybody else mm -hmm. so 
Yeah. And that's true because it's really, and I feel like just to add on that, it comes down to, you know, you being worthy of trusting, um, like your opinion, your perspective, your intuition is worthy of trusting over somebody else's. Um, and yeah, that does come back to loving yourself and believing that, yeah, you are worth listening to and you're capable of, of you know, one thing, one thing we do in Western culture is kind of idolize education. Mm -hmm. But when, you know, no education is ever complete. I mean, if you think about how much knowledge there is in the world and how many things we haven't even discovered yet, no one person can know and remember all of it. And so education is always very niche. You know, it's it's just this much. And that's why it's so important to trust your heart because even this person that you think knows everything about a certain subject, they they don't know everything. And and if your heart is is giving you any reservation at all about trusting them, then you need to hold back and tune in. You know, and the and the biggest example for me in that right now is our medical system. You know, there are a lot of people who have no idea what's going on there. And all we look at is how much education those doctors have had, but there is a whole lot more at play than just their education. And to tell you the truth, there's not a one of them I would trust with much because there's, there's too many influences on them. There's too many regulations. There's too many uh, rules, you know, that they're supposed to follow people they have to answer to um, influences. I mean, it's just too much. And people still look at them and like, yeah, but they know all this. Yeah, but they don't know you. And you might have something else, you know, that you can contribute to that that information that is that is more valid than all their book learning. Well, and and they're not even aware of of how they're being influenced by others. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's true for a lot of us in many ways is we're, you know, we're, we're only aware once we're aware, but, right. Uh, right. but yeah, they have a, yeah, they're being, they're being schooled and educated in one way. And there's so many different ways of looking at health, especially like our bodies are so complex and even, you know, there's the physical elements, but then once you start factoring how emotions, you know, manifest as, physical ailments. Um, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. And even just, um, the, the amount of even nutrition doctors don't really know nutrition and how that, that plays a factor. And you look at the food that's served in hospitals and it's just like, you're trying to keep these people sick. Like it's just mind boggling. So yeah, they they know, they know certain things and sometimes they are worth consulting, um, and you need them sometimes. Um, but you have to be willing with doctors to, I mean, I don't, I don't know about 
where you are in the States, but in Canada, they're always so rushed. They want to get in and out of the room in like two minutes and like, and you got to be that person being like, ah, I don't understand. Like, can you explain it to me? I still don't understand. What do you mean by this? And just like forcing them to take the time, even when they're getting annoyed with you, because they're like, they need to move on to their next patient. And, and just sitting with the information because they're only going to tell you one perspective. A a lot of them here, that's been my experience. They tell, they tell you the one perspective, they downplay the side effects or the risks and, um, it takes, and it, and the pace is so quick that, you know, they want you to make a decision in less than a minute and it can be very overwhelming. And there've been times where I left the doctor's office and I'm like, no, I need to go back because I, 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 <laughs> I don't understand what just happened. Um, yeah. and I understand, um, but that's a, it's a, it's a hard place to be because they're in a position of authority. They're trying to push you. Um, and they're, they're probably just, I know for me, that's just, it triggers a lot because you're just like, am I allowed to ask questions? Like, I don't know. You have these weird things. Of course you're allowed to ask questions, but it, it feels deeply uncomfortable being in those environments. But the truth is, is that they're not in a position of authority. No, no, they really aren't. Okay. They, you have hired them to serve you. And that's a perspective that we have gotten wrong in Western society. We are hiring them to serve us. We're not paying them to tell us what to do. Right. They're not telling, we're not paying them to be the boss of us and give us instructions. And so if you're not feeling served by your doctor, then maybe we should find another doctor. Yeah. And that's really challenging in Canada because we're not paying out of pocket and we don't have choice. Um, You have to like, you can't just go get a second opinion from another doctor unless your doctor has a big practice where there are other doctors on staff and then you can do it. But like, it is hard in Canada because it's all like publicly funded. um, And they're just, they're going through the motions. They, I feel like don't, for the most part care. Um, my family doctor is really good, but anytime I see other doctors in, in that practice, um, I mean, I've had doctors yell at me. I've had them throw me out of their office. I've had, um, just like horrible experiences, but then same thing only we're paying, right. We're paying paying for that same experience. If we want a choice, we can have a choice, but we're going to pay again. Right. And a new patient fee is ridiculous so how many new patient fees do you want to pay to get a second opinion if that's the route you're going to go right yeah that's fair that's fair here we just don't it's all alternative you know we use homeopathic and um and chiropractic and uh you know naturopaths and stuff we don't do western medicine anymore because they they don't serve us Right. They don't give us answers. They give us, you know, take care of the symptoms and create more symptoms. And we're not interested in that. Right. Um, so, so what was it when your daughter was three and you were researching preschools? I'm curious, what was it? Do you remember that made you decide, no, we're not doing that. We're going to homeschool. Cause I feel like 
Um, I think I got a hold of one of, um, I think the first book that I found when I was kind of looking at it was one of John Holt's books. Um, Anybody that homeschools knows John Holt, right? Or is that too old for everybody? He was like, he was like the pioneer. You haven't heard of John Holt? I feel like I've heard the name, but I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, he was probably the pioneer in the United States. And um, and I was bullied in school. And um, it was very devastating for me. And so I wasn't real inclined to put my daughter in that situation in the first place. Second of all, um, I felt like there's plenty of curriculum out there with guides for the teachers. Why can't I do it myself? And um, and thirdly, I think schools are run like everybody's the same and everybody has to learn at the same pace and at the same time in the same year of this age. And that's not how individuals are made. Um, it's just not, and to, to be forced into that mold, um, creates feelings of failure and, um, you know, that other people are better and the competition I think is detrimental to children. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember what the very first thing was. Wait, I think one of the first things that I thought of was I have waited all these years. I was 22, all these years to finally be a mom. And I didn't want to give up being a mom and turn my child over to strangers to raise eight hours a day. That was the biggest thing is that I was not ready to let go of my child and let somebody else have them. So I think that was the first thing for sure for the preschool years. And then the second thing was the worrying about the bullying. But then as I started researching homeschooling and seeing how much better it was for kids to learn at their own pace and to have delayed instruction so that they had more time to play because the work of childhood is play and we're denying them that work. Yeah. They learn so so much. um, So, yeah. I think that it just, like, once I got started, there were more reasons to keep going and more and more piled on top of those. And as it turned out, my husband's ADD and four of my six kids are, and um, and all four of those had a, had a nice big size learning disability attached to it. You know, I don't know how much people know about ADD, but it, the, the, it usually is higher intelligence, higher creativity, charismatic personalities, and then you get a learning disability slapped on them. So, um, so homeschooling was <laughs> amazingly difficult. I don't know how I ever came out on the other side. I used to say I don't know how I stayed sane, but I really think I didn't. I think I really lost my shit for a while and then just kind of regained it more towards the end. 
um, because the, the learning disabilities, in addition to the one child having extreme hyperactivity. Well, yeah. And you, had, was, um, and you had six of them. I know. And whenever, you know, you have a really hard time, you know what people say to you? Well, you chose this. Oh God, that's not helpful. Not helpful. Yes. Because yeah. yes, I did choose it because I adore every single one of them. And I am so thrilled that I had them and I would never do it differently. But it was fucking hard. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that's. And if it had been done in community, it wouldn't have been so bad, you know, but doing it isolated. Yeah, that's, that's, I can't, I can't imagine, honestly, Ellen, I, I, I can't imagine doing it all on your own with that, with the different challenges and just the sheer, sheer number of kids. Um, yeah, we're not meant to do it alone. And you're, you know, if you're homeschooling, you're their teacher, you're their mother, the lines are very blurry. Um, they don't listen to you the same way they listen to teachers. Um, because there's a there's a trust with you that they know that, you know, they can push behave with you. They, they can push your buttons, but they can also they will still be loved if they act out versus at school, they don't know that. Um, so teachers tend to get very different behavior than mothers. And when you're blurring the lines by homeschooling, it just adds a completely different dynamic to, to the relationship. Um, now, did you homeschool like all through, um, high school as well? Like you did the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Um, um, we moved to Houston after we had three kids. I never finished saying that. And um, had the other three in Houston and midwifery was legal. So I did get prenatal care from a midwife. They just never made it to the birth on time. Um, but um, homeschooling was was big here. Like when we were homeschooling in Iowa, I didn't know another soul that was doing it ever. But when we moved here, there were already homeschool groups you know, that were um, getting together and doing like field trips and holidays together and um, that kind of thing. Um, and as my kids got older, at some point, those groups started doing co-ops and then they started hiring um, uh, teachers to teach yeah. classes. And then we had homeschool co-op classes um, so by the time my oldest was in, um, I think it was eighth grade, maybe seventh or eighth grade, there were classes that she could take, um, for things that I didn't want to teach, you know, or that were, you know, was taking too much time because I was in the middle of having my fifth by then, um, you know, yeah, and so That's so once they got out of elementary school, um, there were there were usually a class or two they would take in junior high, and then a few more as they got to high school, and you know, yeah, that's nice that you didn't have to do absolutely everything, absolutely everything by yourself, and now, and now 
I just want to like sort of go to how I know you. Um, you started a business in your 60s. Um, yeah, a year ago, one year yeah. ago. So tell me about that that decision and how you how you ended up there. Um. Well, let me think. The start of it. Um, I decided that I didn't want my kids to have such a hard time as I did. I mean, we, we, we were pretty much poverty level, maybe just above, like struggled immensely the whole time. Um, because the economy sucks, I guess, basically, you know, but anyway, four of my six kids live in the same area that I live in. And um, I, I wanted to be able to help them financially when they needed to and to help them with kids. So I have babysat a lot of my grandkids full time for the first several years. I still babysit um, a few of them um, part time mm -hmm. for, um, for working parents. And um, when my kids can't make ends meet, I want to be able to contribute and help them out with things. And so what we did after um, the last kids moved out and then another one moved in and then when they all moved out final, we um, moved into a much, much smaller house that we rented. And then, um, and then we bought a school bus and my husband turned it into uh, RV, it's right here. And we've been living in that for eight years and we don't have to pay any rent or utilities. Um, the first, when we first moved into it, we moved on to a, a property a business that had a couple acres and a big like warehouse uh, workshop thing. There was welding and all this stuff going on and they wanted nighttime security. And so we were able to live there for seven years, um, rent and utility free. And, okay. um, and we built, when we moved in, he had ripped out all of the seats and the flooring and laid the new floor. And then we moved in with a mattress and a toaster oven and a jug of water, you know, and wow. he built it and he built it with cash as we went, you know, and, um, and now we're living on, on property and trees. It's really nice. Um, some people that we know that he, he's building their house. And then he built a guest house and then he put in a pool and like, they just keep going with all these projects and he does a few other things, but he's kind of semi-retired. Um, and we live off of social security and the little bit he makes now, I mean, he, he made a lot when he was building the house, but now they keep him busy about two days a week. And so, so our income is a lot lower, but if it's, plenty to take care of just me and my husband but that's not what we want we want to be able to leave something for our kids and we want to be able to continue to help them as much as we can and so when I found out about Enagic um we joined up because I want to uh get to the point of legacy income with Enagic so that I have money that I can will to my children and I want to make a lot between now and then that I can help them. And I haven't traveled enough yet. So 
traveling and helping kids is a big motivator for me for this business. Yeah. And that's one of the really cool things about Enagic is that legacy income. So what that means is essentially you have a passive, you get to a point of, in sales where you get passive income that you can then will to your kids um, just for those listening. Um, and that's very, that's, that's incredible. I, I mean, I don't know of any other companies. I mean, maybe they're out there, but I don't know of any. Um, and what a beautiful way to be able to support your children, even though they're not children anymore, they have grandchildren, but um, I don't know. I think that just comes back to, I, I mean, it just, I feel like it, it ties back to where we started the conversation of just your strong desire to be a mom and just, you know, raise your kids and take care of your kids. And I feel like um, what you just said about even as adults, or even as, you know, at the stage of life that you're in where your kids are adults um, with their own kids, you still have that, that driving factor to take care of your kids and have, and have some fun traveling and, um, as well, but, um, yeah, we have 14 grandkids now and, um, we're leaving Monday on vacation and we're taking two of them with us for nine days, a 14 year old and a 12 year old. Um, and we're so excited to be able to show them some new things they haven't seen before. And we're taking them to the Grand Canyon and we're going to do a bunch of stuff with them. So, And, and it's, it's just amazing that you get to, you get to have those experiences with your grandkids and you yeah, get to, loving it. yeah, that's, that's incredible. All right, Ellen, um, if people want to connect with you, um, where, where is the best place to go or where, where can we send them? So, um, I'm on TikTok, just my name everywhere. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm probably on Facebook the most right now. And, um, you know, just, it's just Owen Buckingham. If you really wanted to talk to me, just to talk to me, either put a comment on my, on a Facebook post or DM me on messenger would be the easiest way you know that's good and I'm a, I'll, put the, I'll put the link i'll put all the links in the show notes with this episode is there anything else you want to share or are we are we good to end here well i said before two things question yes. everything and trust your intuition which has to start with self-love because you can misinterpret your intuition, your intuition if you don't love yourself. The third thing that I would add to that, because I thought of this afterwards, is mm -hmm. stop being afraid of everything. There is no place for massive fear in our lives. And if something is bringing you fear, then get it out from in front of your face. I think that's really, really important right now because it's really hard to stay happy and positive if you're watching any type of media that is bringing you fear and making you upset and um, it's hard to manifest, it's hard to, you know, do anything when you have that constant fear mongering going into you. And um, that's one thing that my husband and I were very effective at doing is we just shut it out. We like being informed. We read tons of books. Um, but we're very selective about what we hear and see so that we don't let fear get into our lives. So that is the third thing I would say. 
and then I'll let well, you go to talk on yeah, that. Well, and, and that's a really great message because when we're in fear, we can't tap into our intuition because the fear is literally overriding everything in our body. And if you think of, you know, here, fear from, you know, an ancestral historical perspective, it's meant to keep you safe. It's meant to override everything to get you out, out or fight or whatever. Um, but yeah, if you're in a state of fear, whether that's intense fear or just even some anxiety, it is really hard to tap into your logic and reason. Cause that's a different part of your brain, but it's also hard to tap into your intuition. Cause you just, you need to be settled in your body to be able to feel the intuition. Um, so that is a you'll wonder- follow the fear instead. You'll make your decisions from that place of fear. Absolutely. And when you're following your intuition, you're making your decisions from a place of love, mm-hmm. you know, and fear and love are opposites. And so you can't make a decision out of both of those. If you're in fear, it's not going to be from your, from your place of love. You know, you got to choose. Yeah. And so with the fear in with the love in order to follow your intuition. Yeah, that is, that is such an excellent point because you can't, you can't feel both at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Ellen, so much for being here today. And to everybody else, I hope you enjoyed Ellen as much as I love talking to Ellen. Um, So have a wonderful rest of your day.